Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 19 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. Our guest on this podcast is journalist and longtime news anchor Larry Sperano. We talk with him about the war in Gaza. I'm joined by 16 of my classmates. David Osborne, I live in Philadelphia, have worked for public, public broadcasting in New York and Philadelphia most of my life. Grew up in South and Central America. <clears throat> okay, Bill. Bill Collins, live in Aiken, South Carolina, grew up in the Boston area, 20 years in the Navy, a trained user of organized violence, which I think might be something we want to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, John. Hi, John Woodford. Uh, grew up across the state in Benton Harbor, Michigan, a little town. And now I'm in Ann Arbor, where I've been, um, was editing and writing for quite a while. Ron Blau, living in Newton, Massachusetts, worked in TV and video all my life, still making videos. Uh, now trying to get people to volunteer for the next election through using video recruiting. Okay. And Ann Huberman. Uh, I'm Ann Huberman. I'm in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Uh, I'm a retired academic librarian and a climate activist. We just got a grant for $700,000. And wow. we just got the town to hire a climate uh, uh, coordinator. So Ooh, we're. Valerie, wow. I'll take it. <laughs> progress. Great, great. Liz. Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Morey, and I'd like to mention that everybody that's already said something, uh, we're all class of 63 at either Harvard or Radcliffe, so we're all octogenarians. And uh, <laughs> I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland. I am a California by uh, identification and uh, an almost retired psychologist about which Hamp kids me on every call. Okay, Jerry. <laughs> Uh, Jerry Secundi, I live in Pasadena, California. I grew up in segregated Washington, D.C. A lawyer, I've spent most of my career doing environmental work, especially in water areas. Okay, Ezra. Retired uh, academic psychiatrist, Yale School of Medicine, uh, and living in the New Haven. Okay, and Peter. Yes, uh, I'm in class of 64, actually, so I'm sort of a guest. <laughs> it's not, but not an outsider. But I am considerably younger than everyone else in the group. <laughs> well, a year, perhaps. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> immature. And I, I'm from, I'm from, I was from Evanston, Illinois, originally, and I live up in northern New Hampshire. Hey, Doug. Uh, Doug Shapiro. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, but my heart is with these guys. I don't know if you can see this picture of these fish. Oh. Um, the orange ones are females and the red guy is a male. And what's interesting about this species is that all individuals mature initially as females. And the only way for, to get a male is for a female to change sex. And so I spent a lot, many years kind of discover, uh, trying to figure out how that works and why. Okay, wow. <laughs> you, want to, you want to do that? I want to, 
Okay, Cindy. It's already been done. Yeah, I'm um, Allison Wardle, class of 63. I'm, my nickname is Cindy. I'm always called that. I am in Rodden County, which is uh, a small town in the province of Siena, uh, where I've been for a good deal of time. Okay, Hamp. Hamp Howell, 30 years in the Northeast and 50 years in uh, the uh, South and uh, including Brazil and Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, I'll just say that uh, I went to bed uh, listening about uh, the uh, Middle East and I uh, woke up listening about it. Okay, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Fox, a sociologist. Uh, living in southeastern Spain, where I'm trying to do sociology through fiction. Yay, Marcy. <laughs> I uh, run Clean Air Campaign, and it's Open Rivers Project and Archives and Disaster Prevention Projects in New York City. George Jones, initially an Okie from Muskogee, now living in Ann Arbor. Okay, <laughs> Dorothy. Hi, I'm Dorothy. I live in Belmont, Massachusetts. Uh, spent half my life here, half my life in Harlem. Lifelong civil rights and anti-poverty activist negotiating inside our unjust uh, world to try and create opportunities for everybody. Uh, and my heart this month is also in the Middle East. Yeah, and Larry, how are you? What I started to say was uh, Ken and I worked together at Fox 40 in Binghamton for a number of years. I've been in journalism over 30 years, and uh, what disturbs me is the one-sided view and commentator, commentary we're getting from mainstream media. We're hearing basically just Israel's side, although CNN, to its credit, is at least interviewing some of the Palestinians and having them tell their side of the story. Now, nothing justifies the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas. However, as the president of the U.N. said uh, just today, uh, this did not occur in a vacuum. And that was immediately labeled as anti-Semitic uh, mm -hmm. comment. Which, uh, what, what he's referring to is what led up to this since Israel was formed, declared a state after the Balfour Declaration uh, by, by Britain and then the U.N. declared it, created the state of Israel in 1948. And since then, the Palestinians have been displaced in the hundreds of thousands, driven out of Palestine, and, and the um, settlements, uh, Israeli settlements on occupied land, which is illegal, have been encroaching more and more. So there's very little left of what used to be Palestinian land. And that sets the stage for the rise of radicals and the atrocities that they're committing. So it did not occur in a vacuum, but it doesn't justify what Hamas has been doing. But, but what about this 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 uh, ha, this idea that Israel uh, has a right and Israel is right? I mean, that's been the mantra that's been uh, going around the media. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, that's what's... well. This is this is unpopular to say, and I'm going to be labeled as anti-Semitic. But I, you know, it's it's argumentative whether Israel does have a right to exist. They created Israel out of the land that the Palestinians have been occupying for thousands of years. Now, you know, their claim to, to the right is that God gave them that land. 
well, not according to Palestinians and not according to the, who the Palestinians worship. So what I'm saying is just the creation of Israel set the stage for this continuing and evolving and perpetual turmoil. I mean, what did they expect declaring the state of Israel, creating it and driving the Palestinians out? I and mean, that was just asking for trouble. Yeah. This is Doug. Can I make a comment here, please? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Jews began moving to uh, to, to Palestine uh, in the early part of, of, of the century. Uh, and in the beginning, and for, for decades, what would happen is, is that wealthy uh, European Jews would buy up a piece of land from a, Palestin a Palestinian who generally was not occupying the land, but was living elsewhere. And the land then uh, served as the place where uh, uh, the Palestinian uh, immigrants uh, uh, settled and began to try to farm. They, they didn't do very successfully. So all the way up until 1948, you know, uh, Jews were not pushing out Palestinians. It was all kind of, the movement was legal and so forth and so on. So we need to be a little bit careful about uh, making broad generalizations about this. But I mean, well, how, well, what is your source for the process you described though? I mean, it's that's one version of what happened and no doubt some of that happened, but no doubt also many other things were also happening with people losing land or being driven away from it in other ways. That's basically the story, and, and I think it's, it's largely accurate. I mean, uh, yeah, there, there was some uh, legal purchases uh, before 1948, but after that, there was a mass uh, exodus uh, of Palestinians. And, you know, some of the more uh, educated and wealthy Palestinians might have been selling their land, making deals, uh, and even getting jobs, but but uh, largely the masses of Palestinians uh, had no say in the matter. And now, just uh, I think a month before this this uh, flare up, uh, the the Israeli Israelis approved five thousand more settlements in the West Bank. I mean, there's when they talk about two state solution, I don't know where the second state would be. I mean, all the land is now almost all the land is occupied by Israel. Gaza is only 26 miles long and five miles wide, five, six miles wide at its widest. And they have over 2 million people packed in there. And now they're being bombed because, you know, they're not all getting out, you know, even though Israel says they'll move to the south. I mean, you know, just, just uh, it's impractical to expect over a million people in northern Gaza to evacuate that. I mean, you know, half the streets are... are our rubble it's, it's even hard to, to maneuver so you know again it's it's it, there's you know again this isn't justifying what hamas did you know the, the, the savagery of it but i'm saying whenever you get a situation like this wherever it is in the world you're going to get people becoming radicalized and i think this is going to just continue because what's going on now with the civilian population in gaza there's going to be young kids that will grow up to be radicals because of the resentment for this latest war. Uh, two things, really. One is people ask, 
what right does Israel have to be? Well, they have, don't they have the same right as the ones in the United States, the people of the United States and its leaders? They have the same right as, as you know, we who uh, came over here one way or another have to this country, don't they? I mean, in a, in a way, but um, a, a survivor, a survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto, I think his name was Marek Edelman, wrote Hamas is, 10 years ago or so. There's a letter online because he pointed out that in the ghetto, they, they were being exterminated, squeezed into an area. And the uprising in 43, their principle was no killing of innocent civilians no intentional killing of and he said that just because you're being attacked genocidally or whatever you want any way you want to call it it doesn't mean you have to decide that you are going to slaughter uh people not involved you so you they had a principle of not doing it and uh he advised the hamas back then that they ought to study and use the same principle he wasn't uh he was sympathetic to their feeling oppressed and being pressed in but i think he he's right they there's no excuse and there's no justification but you hear people lauding it as some sort you know revolutionary violence and all the stuff that we have heard but a group that does something like that um it's like a it's it's infested the people of palestine a lot of them don't support it i know a lot of palestinians around here they don't support hamas but don't forget, right. Hamas was pretty much installed by the right-wing Israelis. They supported it because they didn't want the secular uh, Palestinian organization, and which was in right. and more interested in democracy. They didn't want them to succeed. They would have rather have Hamas. So it's quite a mess of a situation. But I, uh, I, I'd like to know how people uh, would react to. Uh, this impression I have, and I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that this is entirely accurate, but, but what I think I happened was that the Western powers promoted and, and backed the creation of Israel as a way of solving their Jewish problem, instead of doing what they should have done, which is to protect the rights of Jews and Jew and gypsies and anybody else and, and give them their citizenship. Most of the Jews who who en ended up going to Israel would much rather have stayed at home if they could have done that, if they would have been protected. But um, so anyway, uh, I, I'd like to know if if, if, uh, if that's also the sense of other people in this group. I think there was a feeling of guilt after World War II about yeah. the Nazis and the Nazi Holocaust, and that sure. impelled the Western powers to go ahead and support the formation of Israel. A feeling of guilt, I think. What you just said, John, makes a lot of sense. But we have the situation that we have now, and it's a, it's a terrible situation. But how do we deal with it? Well, I, think I could argue. I could argue. The nations. Say that again. Well, they, they have, they're flouting. The United States is not paying attention to the United Nations. It undercuts the United Nations. And really, as far as the humans on the earth, the United Nations is the only kind of body we have right now that could possibly be involved in a rational objective you hope in and an open and open way with debates and evidence that's the only institution we have and our country the people of our country are being encouraged to ignore the united nations or to vilify it 
Marcy. Oh. Marcy. Let Jerry go first because he's going to answer John, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll answer John, but let, let me uh, start off by saying my Jewish father was never a supporter of Israel. He felt the promised land for Jews was here in the United States, and he would not give bonds to Israel because of that. He felt this was our home. This is where we were going to survive. But let me ask Larry this. Uh, I don't disagree with some of what Larry said, although the Arabs have certainly used the Palestinians as pawns, as we all know, to stir up trouble within Israel. Uh, and I have absolutely no accord with what Netanyahu has done in terms of more and more settlements in the West Bank, although there is still sufficient land there. But I would ask Larry, what would you do as an Israeli leader at this point in time, after the slaughter that we have seen, what do you think they should do in terms of Gaza at this point? What is your solution? It's a very difficult thing to, to even suggest a solution because you know, the Israelis have to contain Hamas. But how do you do that without massive civilian casualties, which is going to enrage the Palestinians even more and create more terrorists in the future? I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a quandary. But I'm, I'm saying, you know, that this all started back in 1948. And what did they expect? Well, it started in 48. Keep in mind, when Israel was declared a state in 48, what happened? They were attacked by all the neighboring states at that point in time. So it wasn't, they weren't just, you know, an innocent state sitting by. Uh, it really engendered what we've now seen as a decades-long war. Uh, and there have been many, many uprisings, as you well know. So I don't have an easy solution either. Uh, if the Israelis go in on ground forces, many civilians will be slaughtered. There's no question in my mind about that. And many of the Israelis will be killed also. But I don't know what I would do as an Israeli. If I were an Israeli and I had just seen 1,400 of my people slaughtered, would I just say, well, yeah, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have settlements in the West Bank. We've not treated the Arabs very well. Uh, they certainly deserve a second state. And we're not going to do anything. I can't believe we would just sit back and do nothing. But I mean, what about this sense of proportionate violence in the sense that how many people, how many uh, people from Gaza are going to have to be killed before that that before it stops. I mean, when when does yeah. it? I mean, that's the question. When do they stop the killing? And not only not only that, Kent. Even if the Israelis succeeded, let's say they go into Gaza with ground troops. Let's say they wipe out Hamas completely. They right. kill thousands of civilians. Then what? Then you have a vacuum, as we had in Iraq. Who then takes over leadership, or do we simply have chaos at that point? Um, I, this changes it a bit, and we should go back to all these questions. But um, I wanted to ask Ezra before I have to leave. Um, on October 7th, briefly, there was um, a shot on CNN in the propaganda war um, of six kids they look maybe 12 boys 12 years old maybe tops um i who had just participated in the slaughter of of the jews that day um grinning as as they were taking a selfie of themselves um because of what they had done and um 
a friend of mine observed, uh, these guys think it's a video game. Uh, the people they have killed are not human to them. Yeah. And since half of uh, the people living in Gaza now are kids, they're young, um, and and probably a lot of the Israeli fighters are young. Um, what is the possibility of social, economic, and political institutions and religious and cultural institutions for bringing out the good and loving in people as opposed to violence and hatred? recognizing one another's humanity? Well, <clears throat> you're posing, of course, a, a very complicated question, and one that uh, we psychiatrists have been interested in for uh, for a very long time. And the part, part of the problem is that it, it is very difficult for most of us to sit still and quietly and go over the history of it all and 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 what it means about the the notion of the word humane and humanity and 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 really observe the things uh that we do i just finished a paper on um the concept of dignity in in psychiatry and and you know once i finished reading it i the solution is uh, extremely difficult. So, so all that you we've heard this morning, just among us, ig ignores the fact that uh, you're talking about 1948. 1948 was was an important period of time uh, for all of us living in the Americas and living in Europe. And what was characterizing that time? What was characterizing that time? What was a notion uh, of of, of a, a a ladder, whether you want to call it ethnic, racist, whatever you want, a racial or whatever. The societies all around us in Europe and the U.S. were racialized in the construction of of otherness, um, which in fact they weren't using that term then. But but that's that was pervading, that was pervading everything that was going on. So when you're talking about violence and the way it was going on in the societies, look, I grew up in Barbados and I grew up in a British society and I came to know the British. And then I lived in France for a long time and still spent a lot of time there and I came to know the French. This violence that everybody is so horrified by, I, I as a psychiatrist, because I, I, I read and I've spent time in these countries, it... It 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 just it just astonishes me. I I don't I don't know how anyone understanding the history of recent relatively recent Europe and the Americas could be horrified by what um, the uh, by what the Hamas group did because the Hamas group in fact did it because they learned it at the hands of all the major European groups and yeah. everybody knows about it in the Americas with the with the Native Americans and so on. France, the, the Fra France, the piece I've studied a lot is what happened in Algeria, in that famous movie, uh, La Guerre d'Algérie, 
and you all should see that movie because because nothing happened in the last few weeks that the French didn't perpetrate. Nothing has happened that it hasn't been perpetrated by the British in their colonies. I, I, I mean, we've talked about military. I don't talk much about my military experience, but I spent a year in Vietnam. And for the Americans to get up in the UN and talk all the foolishness that they talk about, violence, and they're talking about what, what the, the people did to the kids and so on. Have you ever seen the films with, with, with what happened in Vietnam, with the napalm falling on the skin of women and children? And, and, and Americans can get up in the United Nations and talk about the, the, the other people are animals. This is, a, this is a vocabulary that as a psychiatrist, I cringe, and, and my wife sees it, and we, she doesn't want to keep me. She doesn't want me to keep watching it because it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make any sense. And the and the solutions are very difficult because because before we look outward to the consideration of the others, we've got to look inward and talk about ourselves. Nobody should go and be allowed in the, from the United States to go into the United Nations and talk about anything having to do with violence. We've done it internally, and that's all coming to light now with all the, the attitude towards the Native Americans and what we did to the and so on. Everybody knows that. And then people are, and then and in Vietnam and torture and so on. How can you can you talk about torture? When 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 the, the secretary of the Department of Defense got on television during Vietnam and said, "We don't torture anybody," and then and then even my favorite president came in, and he didn't want to deal with punishing people for what they did with the setting up of the sites in Europe and so on. We, we don't acknowledge any of this stuff. We don't acknowledge it. And so so coming back now to there's there's substantial literature on 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 what's happening to the children. Uh, in Israel, and uh, how they have suffered because of the warlike atmosphere that has pervaded Israeli populations. I am I am not Jewish. I have never visited Israel, but everybody knows that literature, and and everybody knows that the notion of war, even though even though they they're macho and, and Netanyahu wants to sit up and it is the worst thing in the world for the Israeli population as well as the neighbors to be engaging in this as some kind of solution because they can't stop hating. They can't stop hating. Only this week I read a wonderful essay in the New York Times, and I hope you all read it, and it was about, it, it was about in fact, uh, uh, Netanyahu's uh, parents. But I had never read mm -hmm. that essay before, and I didn't understand from a psychiatric point of view where he'd learned this hatred and so on. But the father apparently was never interested and never could conceptualize that the Arabs could live next to the Jews. So the Netanyahu family was uh, he you know he was raised and his brother who was a military hero they they were raised in, in on, a, on a doctrine that is very 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 hard for me as a psychiatrist to talk about and 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 when you look at what's going on there is a suggestion about some enjoyment. So that enjoyment, you see, that juvenile enjoyment reflects to some degree, and again, we don't want to talk about that. And that's the adult enjoyment in the business of killing. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk a very careful line and not, not be destructive about this because 
I, I am very respectful of, of the service that several military people in this group have participated uh, in, and I don't want to throw on accusations. So I, in fact, I, I stay away from accusations because it's clear to me as a psychiatrist that, that our societies have all done it. I don't know anything about China, and I don't know anything about the USSR. So I, I may never make any comments about them. But in terms of talking about Western Europe and the Americas that I know well, there is no one historically who has a right to walk around anywhere criticizing anybody about any of this stuff. So the thing is, get rid of the language, recognize what we're doing to our children and how we've participated in spreading it. And then, yes, the only way, John, is going to get better is for somebody to step up and say, we got to stop it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and spending time talking about who's right and who's wrong is an absolute psychiatric waste of time. Mm-hmm. Because, because I can sit here and tell you, even with my short reading, the Israelis have not done anything that the, 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 the Palestinians haven't done. Palestinians have not done anything the Israelis haven't done. So all this language on CNN, which I've watched faithfully, is absolute concentrated nonsense. We've all done the same things. That includes all the Americans, all the British, and all the French. That I know of. I know of their history. I'm not talking about the others. I don't, I don't know the others well. But those two other European countries, I know very well, and they are as guilty as anybody and anything going on in the Middle East. Right, right. So, Phil. so where we go from here? I turn it over to Kent. I, 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 I don't arguing, arguing out last last statement because I spent a lot of time in ethics and arguing out the ethics of what is going on yeah. in in the, in the last couple of weeks is an absolute concentrated waste yeah. of time of who did the worst in in the Second World War because everybody participated in it. Yeah. Let me repeat that. Everybody participated in it. We just it was I have found out in the ethics textbooks that a lot of the stuff that the 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 the, the Japanese did was was blathered about, but the Americans were doing the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Yeah. And nobody wanted to talk about the Americans. And that's <laughs> that's stated in the text. The Americans did not want anybody to talk about the things that they were doing. Not, and, and you all know this because nobody has wanted to talk about what goes on at Guantanamo. Guantanamo remains a major problem. And before you go over to anywhere in the Middle East, talking like someone who's got a gift to solve this, you, we cannot even get Guantanamo closed down. And there's the question again of the issue of enjoyment, Marcy. Yeah. Why why we have not been able to close Guantanamo down and stop the behavioral torturing of the people there is a major question in psychiatry. They won't even let us in to see the stuff, far less to talk about it. So I'm I've I've said all I wanted to say this morning. I apologize again for preaching. Oh, that's that's okay. like all of you. I get passionate about the stuff and and feeling helpless. Yeah. Feeling helpless because all the geniuses from the State Department and so on, they're talking concentrated, unabated nonsense. Yeah. Oh, man. Bill. 
Yeah, I, I first of all, I want to echo, I, I go right along with what Ezra said. I'm not a psychiatrist, but what he said is profoundly true. And uh, um, as, as he said, throughout history, uh, political powers have arisen by conquest, by violence, terrible, terrible violence. And, uh, you know, I said earlier that I was 20 years in the Navy, trained user of violence, right? But my goodness, it's just uh, horrendous history. And, um, you know, I'm a Christian, and I go back to what Jesus said. What are the two great commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan at a time when the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. And that was the hero that he called out. And of course, what happened to him? He was crucified. And ultimately, we have to, we have to learn to live together and to give, forgive one another. If the, the Israelis could forgive the Palestinians and the Palestinians forgive the Israelis, there might be might be some chance of peace but goodness sakes very hard to do very hard to do i i don't have an easy answer but the the ultimate answer is forgiveness and love and that puts that makes you vulnerable that makes you vulnerable and if you're not willing to take on that vulnerability then you end up shooting your neighbor instead of loving him Liz. Um, I really, I feel like I'm almost tearful here. Ezra, I agree with everything, absolutely everything that you say, and I'm so glad you said it, because I think it needs to be said over and over and over again. Um, and I hope I didn't get just canceled out. Um, okay. Um, and I remember something that I heard many years ago uh, by a prominent social, psycho social psychologist at Santa Cruz, whose name is I'm blocking on at the moment. And he talked about the difference between punishment and um, stopping somebody. And he was saying punishment is always uh, useless. Uh, it never accomplishes its means. Um, and it certainly is as bad for the punisher as it is for the person being punished. And uh, that if you need to stop, if you need to get somebody to stop, you stop them. But you never, you know, you don't have to do anything more than that. And that was a concept that made an awful lot of sense to me. And I also agree with everything that Bill is saying, and this is a kind of a different example, but I was talking with a friend of mine who's a Montessori teacher, and she was talking about behaviors in preschoolers. And she said she ultimately decided that the only thing you had to do was love them up, you know, that there were no other uh, responses, that that was the only response. And um, I think the whole issue of othering um, is an extraordinarily difficult one. And I think looking inward is the only answer. And, and I completely agree with you. Um, looking inward in community, I think, helps. Uh, just as we're doing on this Zoom, we're, you know, we're, we're being uh, conscious. And conscious is always a struggle. And uh, I'm very, very grateful I'm very grateful, Kent, uh, that you have reinitiated our Zoom because I think we really need to be together and we need to be conscious. 
So Ezra uh, and Bill, thank you both so much. And Marcy, thank you so much for raising the question for Ezra. I really appreciate that. Uh, Ron. Yeah, um, there's been a lot of wisdom expressed here. Um, and I want to thank everybody who's expressed it, particularly Ezra, who took the, the time to say something that made sense in a global way. Um, there's been a lot of, I, I've, I've, with podcasts and news and everything like that, there have been a lot of rational voices that have cut through the nonsense and the partisanship. Um, I'd like to mention that I have a cousin in, in Tel Aviv who said long ago, so, you know, this is not going to be solved in our lifetime. She's she's a teacher of modern Israeli history. And she's, you know, she was out demonstrating a few weeks ago against the Netanyahu government. You know, she's left leaning, let's say. And it just seems that a lot of people have talked about the big picture and have not been able to propose long-term solutions. So I think what has made sense is to just deal with the immediate situation now and deal with the hostages on both sides, deal with the violence on both sides. Don't try to solve Hamas. Um, you know, just, just do what you can to de-escalate because you're not going to solve anything big in the heat of war. And Netanyahu is obviously a major block, um, you know, with his <clears throat> bread in the bone hatred of Arabs. And, um, you know, you could say that he was complicit in the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin years ago. Um, you know, that, that's not, and, and Yitzhak Rabin came maybe as close to anyone as, you know, toward a, some kind of stability, if not an ultimate solution. So I'm just saying, let's concentrate on the immediate situation to de-escalate, and then we can talk about the big picture. Thank you. Uh, Jeff. Yeah, well, um, reacting first to, uh, to what Ezra said, and I'm sure Ezra will agree with, with me on this because it's really been a, a, a theme of much of his work that what we're talking about here is the denial of the humanity of the other. That, that, that this child is not really a baby, this child is a, is a little, is a, is a smaller version of our enemy. It's, you know, and uh, that, um, which is particularly absurd in in the area of Palestine, because of course all those people are Semites, the Arabs, the Arab, Arabs and the and the Jews, and I mean they are they're really they're they're descended from the same same folks. So, but to to deny the humanity of the other, uh, and and of course it was uh, um, I think it was John who said who said in a, the chat that uh, that yes well Europeans didn't didn't invent torture and massacre. I mean, it's, it's uh, th that's been around, uh, that's been recurring uh, throughout history. Um, but uh, this, was, this was, of course, one of the things that, that made me want to focus 
so much on an attempt in Europe to counter that, to talk about the humanity of all, all of all people, which was, of course, why I why I was working on on the Paris Commune, which I think, well, the the French Revolution in its in some of its phases, uh, not not everything that happened in the French Revolution was uh, was very admirable, but the the recognition of everyone's humanity, life, liberty, you know, or or uh, um, liberty, equality, just justice, um, and then taken up again with the with the ambition of the commune and later of the communists, the early the early communists had a notion uh, you know, of uh, the whole human race had to be liberated. So, but anyway, but uh, we're far from that, of course. Yeah. I had, uh, there was another point I wanted to make uh, quite different. And that is, I wonder if uh, people who are more familiar with Israeli history than I might uh, uh, check this, uh, my impression that one of the very serious problem, uh, causes, causes of the problem was that early partition that the uh, Western powers imposed on the, the way they divided up the land was so that a, Palestine, that a Palestinian territory in, in two pieces separated separated by a lot of a lot of Jewish territory and it was sort of like designed to create conflict. So okay, that's all I have to say. Hey Peter, yeah. So you wonder. To what extent uh, Hamas's tactic was rationally thought out, and to what extent it was just impulsive? Because it seems to me designed to ultimately elicit sympathy in the Arab world, but you couldn't possibly design a attack or, or a program more designed to appall and infuriate and justify and everything else the Western world and the, the Americans and, and the Europeans. So it's a tactic that just was designed to raise the hackles on on both sides. And, and the reaction in this country is is certainly to be expected. I, I as everybody probably knows, uh, and I because I mentioned a lot in after Harvard, I uh, joined SNCC and the civil rights movement. And just in terms of this context of never-ending human violence going back forever, which is kind of the human condition, I'd just like to say a word about the genius of, and here we are on the last Negroes program, the genius of the, of the African-American civil rights movement coming out of the African-American church. And... You know, the, the, of course, there hasn't been a lot of success, but things are different. Things be, are better since the 60s and the regressive forces in this country are just, of course, human nature being what it is, kind of endless. But I, I think that that the, the tactic, the genius, the tactics of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in, in the terms of the present situation in the world are just something to marvel at and and uh, to under to learn from uh, a tactic that both exposes the evil, but does not commit an evil 
that creates more evil, you know? So I just raise that as an example of something positive in, yeah. in, in the world recently. Mm -hmm. Okay, Doug. Um, yeah, I, I thought I would just like, maybe it would be useful to throw out a couple of kind of personal experiences that I had in, in Israel. Um, my, some of my graduate students and I spent uh, a lot of time between 1987 and 1993 working at a small but very modern uh, uh, marine lab in a lot, which is the southernmost tip of, of Israel. Um, and the, the lab was right on the beach, and it was a lovely beach, uh, <clears throat> the Gulf of Aqaba or the Gulf of Eilat, whichever term you want to use, is an extension of the Red Sea. Um, and so even though it's not physically in the tropics, uh, the ecology of the uh, waters and the, and the city uh, there uh, were very kind of tropical in nature. There was a lovely little beach uh, just outside of the town in a lot. Uh, and during when when the, the when it wasn't too hot, uh, a lot of uh, young Europeans would uh, come to uh, to a lot uh, to spend time on the beach. Uh, many of these people were uh, using drugs. Uh, some of them were uh, messed up psychologically and all kinds of things. Anyway, in a lot, there was a uh, there was a, a, a an established uh, a Christian church there and and, and community, and uh, the church organized uh, a kind of a program, and they would go down Thank to the beach and wander around and find uh, young Europeans who were having uh, uh, problems uh, dealing with their drugs or other problems, and they would invite these individuals to. Um, uh, participate in uh, some of the church programs uh, to kind of assist them with their with their problems. It was a very good, beneficial uh, activity that the church was done. But there was also uh, a um, an extremely um, uh, serious uh, uh, Jewish component in the city. Uh, they were uh, that did not like the idea that uh, that there could be any Christian church uh, living in a lot, much less doing good, and they tried to force the, uh, the the church to shut down and so forth. They weren't successful, but they tried. So that's one kind of thing. And the other thing that I wanted to mention was that um, uh, this uh, marine lab, which was right on the coast. Um, there was a, an, an incident there uh, during the time that we were there in which some kind of a, a terrorist from either from uh, Jordan or from Saudi Arabia, which was a little bit to the south, um, got a big uh, mesh bag and filled it up with all kinds of explosive devices and automatic weapons and tied it around his waist. And uh, then he, he kind of swam across the Gulf of Aqaba, which is amazing because it's like five miles in, 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 in open water. 
Uh, and at 5 a.m. On, on a morning, he uh, he climbed out of the out of the water onto the beach at the marine lab. There was a night watchman there. Uh, this uh, terrorist guy uh, he killed the night watchman, and so forth and so on. And eventually, the guy was was killed by the the uh, Israeli Defense Force. Um, but the the point is is that there. All kinds of things that are going on there that just don't make sense, and and even though lots and lots of individuals are extremely fine, upstanding people, uh, and they we would recognize them as people that we would be more than happy to be friends with, and colleagues of, and so forth and so on, and seemingly we would all share common values, but not everyone is like that. And so it's a very, very difficult situation to deal with. Dorothy? I, uh, thanks, Kent. Uh, I wanna echo what Peter said about, um, we need to look to the nonviolent moral movements based on love, based on a vision of no enemies and based on never uh, retaliating, but always uh, proclaiming the vision of people uh, creating a better world for everybody. And while the history, the long history uh, that John referenced of violence throughout the, the thousands and thousands of years is really troubling to me about what does that mean about human nature? I truly believe from what I've experienced with every human person that we are, we are born inherently good inherently smart, inherently yearning for connection and love. Their little babies come out searching and happy, and then they get hurt. And they get hurt by the society, and they get hurt by their sick families, and then hurt people hurt people. And so there have to be ways that people can recover from their hurts and can unite with other people to make sure that we as the human race recover from our our long-term historical hurts. My father's family were Orthodox Jews who fled uh, the pogroms in the Ukraine. My mother's family were anti-Semitic Germans who disowned her when she married a Jew. And when I was about eight years old, I said to myself, there's no point in being a Jew, they get killed by the Germans, and there's no point in being a German, they kill the Jews, so the only thing I could be is a human being, and I will belong everywhere. And my grandfather had told my mother that she would destroy the lives of her children because by marrying a Jew, all of her children would be misfits and welcome nowhere. Uh, she said, you're wrong. I can transcend those views and my children will be fine. Um, I think we, as the human race, have got to embrace the Martin Luther King view. I think uh, I do, it's why I follow Reverend Barber. He's trying his best to bring all groups of people together to uh, envision a better world. Now, one of my other questions for all of you is what I don't understand is what's the cause? Is the cause of the problems we have you know, in our DNA that we have a fight or flight reaction. And when some, when we get hurt, well, then we're to go completely irrational and we start 
you know, fighting and killing and defending or fleeing or whatever? Or is it that we've also that we've structured our global economy in such a way that it's we've persuaded people that it's all about individualism, it's all about protecting yourself, it's all about getting rich. And to what extent is the problem in the Middle East based on the concentration of oil in the Middle East? And I want to understand how the economics plays into keeping people fighting with each other. I don't understand it. I don't know it, but people don't talk about it enough. Um, and I think we're going to have to, we have to control the concentration of wealth and power um, so that, you know, the military forces, uh, you know, somebody's getting rich off these wars. Um, we need to pay attention to it. Somebody's getting rich off preserving the oil, access to oil in the Middle East. How does that play into the fight? Um, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I do know we need a massive united movement based on love that stands up. And by the way, let's remember that there's been a lot of bad things in history, but there have been billions of people who have dedicated their entire lives and their whole hearts, their whole beings to improving the conditions of humanity. And let's uplift those stories while we're at it. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Here, here, here. So Larry, you have the final word. <laughs> Well, I, I hate to be the cynic here, but you know everything that many of you have said about the love and compassion and all that, very nice. But let's look at history. It hasn't worked. <laughs> Christianity helped mellow the Roman Empire for a while. But then look at the world today. Gandhi, nonviolence. You know, he, he got India freed and perhaps evolved into something else, but you know, that's a mess today. Uh, Martin Luther King, same thing, nonviolence, and he did make inroads with civil rights. But again, look, look at race relations today. So what I'm saying is, it is in our DNA. It's human nature. It's always gonna be there. And I don't know any simple solution with love and, and compassion and all that, that's going to stick any amount of time I mean, look at the world today and now you know we are killer apes with nuclear weapons as somebody said as an anthropologist said killer apes with nuclear weapons and human nature hasn't changed now we could all make an effort of chalking sentence at people uh loving each other and all that but will it work i'm skeptical and i'm not happy about it but that's my view Look at history. Um, I think looking at history for any examples of smaller, large societies that ever were the kind we would want to aspire to and what what was working and not working there with the human beings in them is a good idea. But mostly we're in a different world today and history has only so much to tell us because of technology and above all, what human beings absolutely need. We see it with the so-called humanitarian efforts trying to get a pathetic amount of water into Gaza. We need air that's not gonna kill us, water that we can drink 
um, and protein because the body can't make its own protein. And then people also seem to want territory and they want a home. Um, but for young people, their lifetime is not going to give them a chance to work everything out because of climate change and what's happening to the basics we need for for survival now. As far as I know, both uh, Gaza and uh, the West Bank and Israel, they're all a desert. And they all depend on energy and desalinization to make anything grow and to drink water. Um, so thinking about those realities in the present and in as much of a future as as all the people living on the planet are prepared to give us <laughs> um, is what's important. And thank you so much, Kent, and everybody for all the wisdom you've imparted today. All right. Thank you, everybody. See you on the okay. panel. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Our guest was journalist Larry Sperano. His website is called On Target with Larry Sperano. And that's it for this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. You can find us on Apple and Spotify. And every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, our podcast stream to the world on WIOXradio.org. And you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.